when we know that Christ is mine forevermore, then we can say in the spirit of David in Psalm 42, rejoice now, O my soul. Why am I disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I will yet what? Praise him. Sometimes the most important sermon you hear each week is the one where you preach the gospel to yourself really every day. Well, you know this scene if you've raised children. In fact, it probably took place this morning. Every child who has ever suffered from separation anxiety has an unspoken fear or fears. Mommy and daddy, will you remember me? Will you come back for me? Or will you forget me forever? Will you leave me with these weird strangers down in the nursery? Your children might not have the ability to articulate those words, but in some sense, these are their unspoken fears. And of course, the heart of a true parent is, yes, I'll always remember you. How could I ever forget you? I could not, I would not, I cannot forget you, my son, my daughter. I'll never leave you there. I'll come back for you. And neither will God with his children. The one who inaugurates the covenant leads his people into a new life, new life on this side of Egypt, on this side of the Red Sea, to what you might call a covenant lifestyle. He redeems his people. He renews his people. He restores his people. It's his infallible commitment to us. And if you are safe this morning as a blood-bought sheep in Jesus, then you may with whole heart respond to the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? And you may say this. That I belong both body and soul and in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has totally paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has completely liberated me from the power of the devil and who takes care of me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, everything must work together for my salvation. Besides this, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him from now on. If your answer is that answer, then you are called, I am called, to a radically new lifestyle in Jesus. Now, to be honest, I've got to ask you to forgive me for the use of this word lifestyle. I don't like that, but... I'm borrowing that from Alec Motier in this book. That's how I've heard Motier, that's how I've heard it said. Maybe Motier, all right? You tell me how you want to pronounce it. But he says lifestyle, the, co- the idea of covenant lifestyle. And I like the idea of the way of life much better. In this point of time where we are between 
his two appearances between the two advents of the risen and exalted and enthroned Christ in this time of the already but not yet, between our rescue from Egypt and our future entry into the promised land lies our own pilgrimage like the Israelites' wilderness wanderings over 40 long, hard years. You and I, if we're in Christ, are no longer in Egypt, but we're not yet in Canaan. We're freed from Pharaoh's bondage, but we've not yet crossed over the Jordan in full possession of the promised land. And for the Christian, you and I do not travel this journey by ourselves, for he keeps assuring us that he is with us. As he told Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he has said the same to those who are his. So we don't travel this journey by ourselves, but neither do we travel this journey for ourselves, you see. Our lives are not our own. Paul says in Colossians 3, we've died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so we silently, amen, we may nod our heads in agreement as we repeat with the Apostle Paul from Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So brothers and sisters, this morning as we come to our text, as we think of Mount Sinai and even that little expression, that day in verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, they came that day. They came into the wilderness of Sinai. We realize that With wrong thinking, we have this wrong thinking that's as old as dirt. We receive new life as though it comes with no change in life. We possess the blessings of the covenant without the responsibilities of the covenant. Ours is new life and hope in Christ, we can think, but somehow without his lordship. There's so much of this first person pronoun, I, me, and my, rather than understanding that we are his. We have died. And we're in Christ if we're his. And so there's no life without a new life. Those who benefit from the covenant of redemption have this radically new life in response to that covenant and its blessings. And it's every dimension, as we'll see in coming weeks, with the 10 words. It's at the level of the way we think. It's at the level of what we speak, and it deals with our hands, the very things we do. And we'll see even in the structure of the 10 words, how the law, that prescription of life in the covenant, seeps in and goes to every area, every dimension of our lives. Nothing's untouched. And so this morning, I want to give the outline briefly, and that is this. Verses one through six, I've called simply welcome to Sinai. Verses seven through nine, the first half of nine, 
we might say, the covenant renewal, or where Moses then communicates the covenant renewal that's in the first six verses to the children of Israel. And then thirdly, we'll see getting ready in the last half of verse 9 through 15. And then verses 16 through 20, here he comes. And then in verses 21 through 25, what I call the hint of holiness. And I want kids, if you are listening well, I want you to listen for certain words. I want you to listen for the word initiation and the word communication, maybe presentation, consecration, purification, condescension, separation. Well, let's look at this text. One thing that we want to understand as we go from Exodus 19 through Deuteronomy chapter 34, which really elaborates the covenant lifestyle, is that you're going to see here this pattern seven times Moses ascends Mount Sinai and comes down. In fact, you'll notice that that takes place in verses two and the first half of three. That's the first ascent. And then you'll see that again in verse, uh, in verse eight. It says, where it read, when you read, and Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, that's Moses ascending a second time. And then finally, at least in chapter 19, in verse 20, Moses uh, goes up a third time. So three of the seven ascensions by Moses to, or to the top of Mount Sinai are right here in Exodus 19. So welcome to Sinai, these first six verses, we see these two concepts, initiation and communication. Israel had already been at Mount Sinai, but the introduction here tells us we've come to a scene, a transition in the narrative, kind of a boundary. That's the point of this word, that day, in verse 1. And taken with Numbers 10, verses 11 and 12, Israel is going to encamp here for the better part of a year at Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. And you know from last week, the very last section of chapter 18, Jethro is helping his son-in-law, he's helping Moses practice some delegation so that for Moses and his inner circle and all the people of Israel, the administration of justice for the great population of the people of Israel, some two million plus, would not wear Moses, his inner circle, and all the people out. But now they come to Sinai. And it's Yahweh who's taking the initiative. If you take Exodus 19, what you'll realize, there's very little speaking by the people. There's a little bit more by Moses, but it's mainly God who's taking the initiative. It's God who's doing the communication, the majority of it. I want you to see this first ascent is a twofold call for Israel's obedience there in verse 5. Look at what God says. You see this where it says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this call is in response to the Lord's covenant renewal. He says, Let me tell you what I've done. And he emphasizes it this way by saying, You yourselves have seen. It's like when you tell someone, you yourself know that I've repeated this to you three times. You ought to know better, right? When you say you yourself. 
All right? Some of you use language like that. That's kind of reflective. Reflexive language. And God says, as he gives this message to Moses up on the mountain, he says, you yourselves have seen. You may testify what I did to the Egyptians, number one, and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, kids, let me give you a perspective here. How many of you have ever seen an eagle in the sky? You ever seen an eagle? Okay. And you understand there is something about the way God made birds of prey. They can get up in the air, and with thermals, with almost no effort, they, they get up, they put out those wings, and there's something about the makeup of those birds and their weight and the effect of wind that they can literally just glide. God said, I enabled you to soar. I enabled you to glide like the eagle. And now I've brought you to myself. I've done it. So it begins with you yourselves. And now he says, I brought you to myself. This if is placed between what God has done and what God promises to do. And what he's done, he adds identity to what his people will be if they will obey his voice and keep his covenant. Number one, he says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. If you come to my house and had coffee, you know that for me to enjoy having coffee with you is to share my favorite coffee cup with you. Some of you, who've ever drunk from that coffee cup? Okay, there's a few hands. You've had that experience. It's one from Suzhou, China. And I've realized now that I give that to people and one day it's going to break. I hope I break it. But if someone else breaks it, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a gift of honor to say that I trust you with my treasured possession. A coffee cup that the only way I could ever get its replacement would be to travel to China. And God says, you will be, if you keep If you obey my voice and you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. If God would ever be like a second grader and go to a class on show and tell and say, this is the favorite thing in my room. God says, you're mine. You're my favorite thing. You're what I gave myself for. You're why I rescued you from Egypt. You're why I bore you up on eagles' wings. You're why I brought you to myself. And he says, you'll be, shall be to me. Notice that he doesn't simply say, you shall be a kingdom of priests. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. He places Israel in relationship to himself. And he says, you shall be to me a holy nation. And Moses receives this charge directly from Yahweh. And he says, these, look what the Lord says to him. He says, these, at the end of verse 6, are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I entrust these words and this message to you. Now you go give them to the people. Welcome to Sinai, to the God who initiates, to the God who communicates. Now we see in the next section, verses 7 through the first half of verse 9, we see this presentation of the renewal of the covenant. So Moses comes down, and he presents this message. He speaks these words, 
you read to the elders of Israel, to the elders there in verse 7 of the people. It says, he called them and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. You know, sometimes when we talk, we mumble. And people have to say, can you say that again? I couldn't hear it. There's no sense here. When we read those words that Moses set before them, all these words that the Lord had commanded him, they were there plainly. What God had done, the conditional ish, if you keep, you obey my voice and keep my covenant, and the, the promises of the identity, what they would be, that they would be his treasured possession among all the peoples, that they would be a kingdom of priests to him, that they would be a holy nation. And he speaks these words to the elders of Israel, I believe in the presence of the people, and the people respond united and in unison. Look what they say. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Not what we've heard from Moses. Notice this, it's very important. They don't say, Moses, what you've said, simply because of your credibility will do it. But they say, all that the, the Lord has spoken, we will do. There's a big difference. And it's not to take away from Moses, but the children of Israel received the words as the very words of God himself. And it's the same way Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in the way they received the gospel as having a divine origin. And so the children of Israel, they receive these words as the words of God himself, the one who makes and keeps promises, the one who inaugurates and renews covenant with his people. And so as an application question right now, when you hear the word sung here, when you have moments where Elvin comes up and reads all of Exodus 19, where you came this morning and you knew if you got the bulletin via Gracie and then opened the bulletin that you would hear a sermon based on Exodus 19. In spite of the sermon not being perfect, do you receive the word as the word of God? And do you receive it then in such a spirit that would cause you to respond this way, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. If you are, if you're willing to do that, then that's the effect God wants. It is him ultimately that all, it's to him ultimately that all obedience is owed. Do you think of yourself as an owner or a steward? Do you think you own your own life? Or do you, have you embraced the sense that your life is a stewardship, that in fact, tomorrow, as you make a list for the things you're going to do on Monday, July 18th, that your life is not your own, you've died and it's hidden with Christ and God, that you're actually a slave of righteousness, that as you go to work tomorrow and you face junk, some of you will face junk tomorrow. Hmm? Is anyone? I see, you don't need to raise your hand, but some of you are nodding. I know what I mean. You know what I mean. Your life 
is not your own. And when you realize you go and you've been bought with a price, that you have died in your life as hid with Christ in God, you may receive that. You can absorb that in the name of the Lord Jesus because you're his. In the last half of verse 8, Moses heads up to the mountain for a second time. It's the only way he could report the people's response to the Lord. I love how he does this. It's like when you're reading Exodus 19 and Moses has written it, it looks very much like maybe you're watching a news report on location and, and, and Moses goes up and say, hey Lord, just in case you weren't aware of it, let me tell you how the people responded to the covenant renewal that you sent me down to give. Here's their message, Lord. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, God. Just want you to know how they responded. I love this. If you think about it. And that's the only way he could report it. And as part of that covenant renewal, the Lord is preparing Moses now for a theophany. That is where God appears to all the people of Israel. But this appearance is going to come after preparation. And with, this, with the Lord shrouded in this thick cloud as he would come to speak to Moses in the hearing of the people. God would come shrouded in a thick cloud. Now, I was trying to think how to illustrate this, and the only way I can think of it is every day when we were in Nairobi this past January and February for a month, outside Nairobi's, outside our church, Trinity Baptist Church, would be Muslim women walking by frequently with their children on the way to school. And except for this little bit, they were completely shrouded they were completely covered so that there was this mystery wondering who is that person what does she really look like because maybe all you could see were eyes a bit of this part of the face and that's how God is shrouded as he would come up to speak to Moses he'd come down to speak to Moses in the hearing of the people now third I want us to see getting ready from the last half of verse 9 to verse 15 the idea of consecration the idea of purification. What would be required of the people of Israel? Consecration, purification. And I, I notice the idea of consecration. Go to the people, consecrate the people today and tomorrow. Set them apart, make them holy. This is the idea here of the word. To be holy is strengthened in the Hebrew to consecrate. Instead of simply to be holy, it's to make something holy. Kind of in our house, I've kind of made this coffee cup from Sujo a holy cup. I've set it apart. I really only give it, I just love to share it just with special gifts. I've kind of consecrated it, set it apart. That's what it means to consecrate something. And that was Moses' responsibility. But what about the people? They had a responsibility as well. And so God says, and let them wash, you consecrate them, but let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. So you ask, how does this work? And it's a perfect picture of our sanctification in Christ. Of the way God is making you more and more like his son. It's synergistic. And in a sense, it's tri-synergistic, if I can say it this way. It's God working in us. 
It's us working to grow more and more like Christ. And it's us working on behalf of one another, linking arms and saying, our holiness is a community project. And Tim Challey says it this way, about the way sanctification requires a team. He says, sanctification is a community project. There are many reasons that the Lord puts us in Christian community in the form of the local church. We are in community for mutual encouragement, mutual labor, mutual support, and so much else. But we are also in community, Tim Challey says, because holiness is a community project. But our sanctification is also a divine human partnership. God works, we work. And Paul places both God's working and our working together in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. You, in effect, he's saying, work out. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so our progress in holiness is not either, but what? It's both and. I want us to see in verses 16 through 20 how God comes. Kind of here he comes. Here he comes. You know what this is like? Kids, you know what it's like to wait on a really special guest. Maybe your grandparents are coming to visit and you're just counting. You know they're supposed to be there at a certain time. Or family, you have friends coming over for dinner and you keep going, looking through the front door, looking through the windows. When are they gonna get here? Well, he's coming. And it's the idea of condescension. Moses has already descended down Sinai to join the assembly. We saw that in verse 14. It says, so Moses went down from the mountain. He's consecrated the people. And the people have made two types of preparation. A, they washed their garments. And B, we believe they submitted to this word of instruction, do not go near a woman. And I don't think we need to elaborate on that for the moment, but simply as adults, we understand what that means. It was saying, temporarily, you abstain from sexual relations. But now on this third day, what happens? Moses leads the consecrated and prepared people to the foot of the mountain, but only after this. It's Yahweh who descends in condescension exactly as he promised. There are rumblings of thunder and flashes of lightning, and then boom, boom. And I almost texted Jonathan Owe this morning to bring his trumpet and to walk through those pair of doors at this exact moment and to give us a very long and loud trumpet blast. This is not like just boom, boom, boom. But this is a long, loud trumpet blast, just like the Lord instructed and promised to Moses during his second ascent in verse 13. He promised this. He said, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And the people tremble. Notice first the people tremble before Sinai trembles. And that's why we use Psalm 29 this morning for our call to worship. All right? Because of the powerful voice of the Lord. 
And this is kind of the ultimate, you know when someone walks in a room, sometimes they're like, here I am, everybody noticed me. Others are like, there you are. There is a sense in this moment when God comes down from Sinai, it's the ultimate, here I am, behold your what? God. In a very ultimate sense. And the people tremble at all this thunder and lightning and the blast, the long, loud blast of the trumpet. But you'll notice there's no audible speech. God's voice is yet unheard to the people. Here he comes. Now look for a moment, if you will. Just fix your eyes on verses 17 through 19. Moses brings the people, I could see this, he's, he's bringing them up to the point where the, the demarcation, where Sinai begins to ramp up you have that, the slope of the mountain from the wilderness right there. And he brings them to the foot of the mountain, but not an inch further. And Yahweh himself has descended in majesty such that the whole of Mount Sinai is shrouded in, mo- in smoke. It's capped with fire. And just as the people trembled, so now the whole mountain, like an earthquake, is trembling. Imagine this. This theophany. And not a single trumpet blast sounds, but this increasingly louder blast. And Moses speaks, but God answers him not in words, but in thunder. And so we have no record of any words, but we have here the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise to Moses in verse 9. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. In all the Lord's appearances, his theophanies often have common themes like the covenant inauguration in Genesis 15, where God had Abram cut these animals and lay them aside in replication of an ancient Near East treaty. So that he said, if I don't keep my promise to you, may it happen to me like it's happened to these animals. Or his appearing to Moses in the midst of the burning bush in Exodus 3, where he reveals and speaks God's covenant name, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. God, Yahweh has this penchant for the dramatic with smoke and fire and thunder and lightnings, trumpet blasts, all which communicate that he's altogether different. He's exalted. He's majestic. He's holy. He may be known, but he will be known on his terms and not our terms. The terms of the covenant from its inauguration in Genesis 15 and the Oath Treaty to the covenant obligation circumcision in Genesis 17 to the covenant sacrifice in Exodus 12 with the Passover and then finally to the covenant lifestyle, the way of walking required by the covenant from Exodus 19 Through Deuteronomy 34, all these terms are his. Finally, I want us to see in 21 through 25, kind of a hint of holiness. It's the words consecration, 
separation. Moses has just ascended the mountain for a third time. And here again we'll see the themes of consecration, of setting something apart, making it holy, and separation. The hints and fragrance of holiness keep increasing throughout this chapter through each of Moses wearying a sense up the mountain and down. It's like he's a bit on God's yo-yo. And the language here is stronger. Look what he says, go down and warn the people. It's the first time we hear the word warn. Lest they break through to the Lord and many of them perish. God is not to be toyed or trifled with even for his people. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day that emphasizes the love and eminence of God. But Exodus 19 reminds us of this unmistakable transcendence of God. Like a father who has to remind his overconfident, prepubescent son that he can still beat him badly in an arm wrestling match. Do you all understand what I mean? Dad is still dad, even if... The boy is catching up in height. And the requirement for holiness, consecration has a special application for those who would serve as spiritual leaders. Brothers and sisters, there's an application for this. As we express Friday night in our membership immersion class, some of you might say, how can I pray for you? I think we could say, Jamie and I with Rich and Scott would say this. Pray Acts 20, 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Take heed to yourself, to the doctrine, and to yourselves and to your teaching that you might say both yourselves and the hearers. The Lord specifically addresses the priests. He says, also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves you notice that Moses was to consecrate the people but now the Lord communicates to Moses this instruction that there's something particular that the priests are to consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them it is an application wait how would you pray for your elders and pastors pray that we would be men who love who pursue holiness who watch over a heart with all discipline because we believe as Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.23 that from it flow the springs of life. Do you see how access to God on Sinai for the people, the priests and Moses and Aaron is like the tabernacle there in the wilderness? Think of it in three parts. The courtyard or outer court, the holy place and the holy of holies. As the people were limited to the foot of the mountain, Equal to the courtyard, the priest to the next tier division, the holy place is an implication of verse 22. So only in Moses, only Moses and Aaron as types of Jesus, our great high priest, are able to go to the mountain of God, to the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. In closing, what is the way, brothers and sisters? What is the way of the covenant? It is by faith in the Son of God who so loved his Father that he said, here am I, send me to the Father's eternal covenant of redemption 
to elect a totally undeserving multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation, whom the Son would redeem by the once-for-all offering of himself upon the cross, that they might be his very own possession in fulfillment of Psalm 2, to the praise, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, of his glorious grace. Not a people wrapped in thick, thick clouds, but wrapped and adorned in the bright and beautiful holiness of their Redeemer. This is the covenant lifestyle. This is the way of the covenant, of people who will obey his voice and will keep his covenant. He says, you shall be my treasured possession. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. He says, you shall be to me a holy nation. God, help us live with an eye to pleasing him, to pursuing holiness, to believe not only in word and to express not only in word but also in deed that we believe that without holiness no one will see the Lord. Can I ask the men to come forward who will help serve communion?